On your state examination, you're going to have 100 multiple choice uniform questions from general types of uh, law questions. And then you're going to have 50 state of Illinois specific questions. Of your 50 Illinois state specific questions, about 30 or 35 of them are going to come out of this chapter alone, the Illinois License Act. So everything in the book that talks about Illinois law, you have to know. And specifically, you have to know all the information here in this Illinois License Act, Chapter 14. So we'll try to cover all the high points of it and the things you have to know. But you can't know this chapter too thoroughly. So make sure you've you know, gone through it very carefully. I'll try to highlight everything and give you the important things. But uh, uh, there's no substitute for a good, thorough reading uh, of Chapter 14. This is about the Illinois Real Estate License Act, and it is administered by the Illinois Department of Professional Regulation. The IDFPR regulates about 60 different kinds of professions, including real estate brokers and salespeople, um, including appraisers, uh, mortgage loan officers, beauticians, morticians, uh, doctors, nurses. Uh, and a number of other professions. One of the largest divisions, of course, is the real estate division, of which there are about 50,000 licensees at the moment. And we have heading that real estate bureau or real estate division, what we call a real estate coordinator, full-time employee whose sole job is to uh, administer the real estate division of the IDFPR. He reports directly to the secretary of the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation. Uh, we should know that the real estate coordinator uh, is someone who has had a license and now he uh, surrenders it to the department during his term. And as long as he's employed by the IDFPR, he is not inv actively involved in the real estate business. When he leaves the IDFPR, he gets his license reinstated and he can continue working in the real estate business. Um, he's the ex officio chairman of the Real Estate Administration Disciplinary Board. He is uh, direct liaison between the Department of the Profession. He prepares, circulates educational material for all licensees. He appoints committees necessary to assist the department. He supervises all real estate activities with his staff, and he serves as, as the chairman of the Real Estate Education Advisory Council. So he has two committees that he works with. One is called the Real Estate Administration and Disciplinary Board. There are nine members of this committee. They are appointed by the governor. Uh, by the way, the real estate commissioner is appointed by the secretary of the IDFPR. The secretary of the IDFPR is appointed by the governor. But the governor also appoints the two major boards that the real estate coordinator works with. He appoints the nine-member uh, uh, nine nine administration disciplinary board, uh, and of th those nine members, six uh, have to have been uh, uh, licensed uh, previous. Uh, three are unlicensed people, members of the public, if you will. The other committee that he works with is called the Real Estate Ed Education Advisory Council. There are five people on that committee. They are appointed by the governor, and as you would suspect, the Real Estate Education Advisory Council advises the coordinator on real estate education matters. So those five individuals have some kind of real estate school experience. They either have are uh, working in with community colleges or with private real estate schools or uh, with a private trade organization, uh, but they almost all have some kind of real estate education experience. 
there is a fund called the Real Estate Research Education Fund, and it is create, created to advance education in the field of real estate. So this fund, we'll find out later, monies from that fund, the director, uh, the coordinator, real estate coordinator, along with the Ed Education Advisory Council, might give money to the profession for uh, seminars and white papers and research uh, that will uh, aid uh, the licensees in, in the business. So we have a, a fund that uh, the Education Advisory Council, along with the uh, real estate coordinator, uh, manage. Who needs to be licensed? Anybody who's involved in selling, exchanging, negotiating, purchasing, renting, auctioning, leasing real estate for others for as a business needs to be licensed. Uh, and uh, anybody who might advertise them as being engaged in the real estate business needs to be licensed. And anyone who assists prospects uh, and uh, these prospects are resulting in the sale, exchange, lease, or rental of real estate. Uh, those individuals need to be licensed as well. Who does not need to be licensed? Uh, anyone who deals with their own property uh, in any real estate matter with their own property or their regular, regular employees who deal with the owner's property. But once you start dealing with many owners or other owners, then you're in the business and you need to be licensed. Uh, also, these people do not have to be licensed. Attorneys, in fact, attorneys at law, receivers, trustees, bankruptcies, administrators, executor, guardians, sort of a, a one-time deal for, uh, you know, uh, as, as part of a court process, uh, don't need to be licensed. Uh, resident apartment managers. Uh, if you live in a residential apartment building and you're managing units for, say, a real estate company who's managing those for an owner, uh, you're excluded from being licensed as long as you remain a resident property manager in, that, in those units. If you change your primary residence, you move away from that uh, multi-unit building, then you no longer can be a resident apartment manager, or if you are, then you're going to have to be licensed. So as long as you're living there, you can manage without being licensed. Office or employee of a federal, state, or governmental agency. Uh, MLSs don't have to be licensed. Uh, railroads, other public utilities, and people who work for them don't have to be licensed. So dealing with their own property, uh, individuals don't have to be licensed. And those are the other ones that are kind of important to kind of remember, the ones we're pointing out here. Do not have to be licensed. Continuing, uh, anyone who has, like a newspaper, uh, they advertise, but they're not really providing any other related services excluded from, from licensing. Uh, a lessee of a residential dwelling unit who refers no more than three tenants in a 12-month period or receives no more, that should be of $1,500 or mon mon one month's rent. So that's $1,500, not $1,000. Uh, does not have to be licensed. So if you're a, a tenant in a building and you refer a buddy of yours that uh, ends up leasing, the property manager there can give you a referral fee, but can only give you three such referral fees in a year or a maximum of $1,500, whichever comes first.
an exchange company and its regular employees registered in a timeshare act do not have to be licensed. Existing timeshare owners, if you own your own timeshare, don't have to be licensed in dealing with your own timeshares. Uh, people who are in auctioning that have an auction license don't have to be li licensed as a real estate broker or salesperson, a real estate broker or managing broker. Hotel operators don't have to be licensed. So you might want to know about those tenants can actually receive referral fees and not have to be licensed to receive those referral fees, but we limit the number and the amount, three and or $1,500, uh, whichever is less. There's a civil penalty if you practice real estate, engage in those activities for others, and uh, you are not licensed, it's tw uh, the department can fine you $25,000 per occurrence. Uh, license categories, we have a broker's license, uh, 21 years of age, good moral character, high school diploma. You must complete 90 hours of approved real estate courses and then 30 post-licensing hours. So the total number of hours that you take to get your broker's license is, and to get and keep your broker's license is 120 hours. That's what the requirement is. So you get 90, you get licensed, then you get 30 later to keep it. If you don't do your 30 hours of post-licensing within your first renewal period, you'll lose your license. Uh, an applicant for a broker's license, uh, if they're an attorney, uh, they are exempt from the educational requirements, but they still have to take the state exam, so they can go directly for a state exam. Most licensed attorneys take some kind of prep course before they take the Illinois broker's exam, although they do not have to do that. They can go directly for the exam if they want to. The managing broker's license, 21 years of age, good moral character, high school diploma. They have to complete 165 hours, but don't forget they already have 120, so they only need 45 additional hours to become a managing broker. And there is a work experience. Managing brokers have to be licensed two of the last three years. So in addition to the additional 45 hours, you also need to be licensed two of the last, actively licensed two of the last three years in order to sit for your state managing broker's license examination given by AMP. Corporations get licensed, typically they will hold broker's licenses. The only rules with corporations is that any active officer general partner or manager must hold a managing broker's license. So if you're active and you're doing managing uh, or you're a general partner, then you must have a managing broker's license. No licensee uh, of, of any broker, no broker licensee or group of brokers can own more than 49% shares in a real estate corporation. Uh, the majority of stockholders that are active must be managing brokers, not brokers. And of course we have the residential leasing agents. These are individuals that engage in residential leasing. It's a limited scope license. They can't do anything other than residential leasing. Uh, they, uh, don't, uh, they can take a 15-hour uh, course and take a residential leasing agent exam. Uh, they can actually be less than 21 years of age.
they can actually be as young as 18, take the 15-hour class, take the leasing agent state exam. Uh, we do allow leasing agents in Illinois a 120-day grace period before they actually have to go and take their state exam. Uh, when you uh, get your license, it must be displayed conspicuously in the licensee's place of business. The department will issue you a pocket card when you pass your state exam. You give that to your managing broker. They fill that out and send it in. And then soon, your sponsor card and temporary permit uh, is changed into your real estate license. And you get your real estate license and uh, your uh, pocket card uh, after you've filled out your sponsor card. So the steps are pass your state exam, uh, fill out a 45-day permit, sometimes called a sponsor card, uh, send that to the state, then you get your license and a pocket card, which of course you keep in your pocket or wallet or purse. If you change your leave of firm, all the broker, uh, managing broker has to do is take your broker license or leasing agent license off the wall, uh, terminate you by signing it. Uh, they take a copy of it and send it to the state. They give you your original back. You go to your new broker. They fill out a new sponsor card and wait for your new broker's license to come to your new uh, um, sponsoring broker. Uh, your old broker has two days to return a copy of your license to them. So they can't just uh, hold it on the wall or keep you from going to another brokerage firm by holding on to your license. They must expeditiously give you your original license back and send the copy to the state within two days. Continuing on page 278, we talk about the change of address for an individual licensee or for a business, a real estate business. Uh, it is the licensee's responsibility, not necessarily the managing broker's, to notify the IDFPR of any change of your home or of your office address. And that needs to be done immediately. Any office ownership changes, IDFPR must be notified immediately. So we have bring in any new stockholders, uh, new principals, new partners, new general partners, new uh, members in an LLC. Um, IDFPR must be notified immediately. If there's a change in the managing broker or one of your branch managers or one of the principals, IDFPR must be notified immediately. But there's a little wiggle room uh, which says that if you do want a 60-day extension to replace that managing broker or replace that branch manager, if you are going to ask for one, you've got 15 days to do that. So either you notify immediately that you've got a change in managers and you're not going to get another manager, you're going to close the office, uh, or if you're, you're, your thought is uh, they'll give you a little time to think about it if you're going to replace your managing broker uh, with somebody else, uh, but then you better ask for a 60-day extension and then make sure that you get that individual, if they don't have a managing broker's license, and they're going to have to send them over to real estate school and get their managing broker's license. Inoperative or expired licenses, a licensee is prohibited from engaging in the real estate business because he or she is unsponsored. So if you don't have a sponsoring broker, you can't get engaged in the real estate business. Or if your license expires and you don't renew it, or if it's revo been revoked, suspended, or invalidated, you cannot practice real estate under those conditions. Non-residents 
people that are licensed in other states that have reciprocity agreements with Illinois, if those states have reciprocity, all they have to do to get an Illinois license is to go and pass the state portion of the Illinois exam. Now, mind you, they must keep their residence and their, uh, and their office in that other state. As long as they're in the other state, they can get an Illinois license. So this would basically be for the states around Illinois, even though we have Nebraska and South Dakota, uh, Georgia, are in Connecticut, Colorado are involved. Typically, we're talking about the states uh, that are contiguous to uh, Illinois, uh, where we have these reciprocity agreements. Uh, I will tell you that uh, Missouri does not have a reciprocity agreement. So if you're in one of those states, you want to stay in that state but practice in Illinois, you can do so, but you have to pass the Illinois portion of the Illinois state exam. Change of address and renewal notification. Uh, if you change your address, you have to notify the department immediately upon change of address so they know where to send any documents to you. A renewal of expired licenses, uh, a license that has lapsed for over two years can't be renewed. You've got to start all over again. So if you let your license lap, lapse, you don't take your CE, uh, you don't get a sponsoring broker, uh, it'll, uh, it'll expire in there. And if it does that for two years, then you won't be able to renew it at all. Renewal fee without a fee. Licensee may renew without paying any lapsed uh, renewal or restatement fee uh, while they're on active military duty or if they're engaged in training or education prior to induction into the military service or if, in fact, they serve as the director of the real estate in, uh, the department here in Illinois, the real estate bureau in Illinois, uh, or if they're an employee of the department. Uh, they don't have to pay lapsed renewal or reinstatement fees. License fees, basically the license fee for leasing agents is $75, for managing brokers and uh, brokers is $125. I do recognize that of the $125 that you pay, $10 goes to the recovery fund, $5 goes to the research fee, real, real, real estate research and education fund fee. We talked about that earlier. We'll talk about the recovery fund at the very last of this uh, of this presentation, we'll talk about the recovery fund, what that is. So that's how we we fund the funds through original licenses. Expiration renewal of current licenses. Broker's licenses, uh, most of you are getting broker's licenses. They expire April 30th of even numbered years. That will become up April 30th of 2012, so you'll have to renew your broker's license. If you're a managing broker, you won't have to renew until April 30th of 2013 odd years. Uh, licenses for business entities expire on October 31st of even number years, and the leasing agents also, their licenses expire on even numbered years, July 31st. Well, as we said earlier, your broker's license and managing broker's licenses and the leasing agent licenses all do expire every two years. And part of the renewal process is not just only to pay your fees and get your license renewed, but part of that, of course, is taking continuing education classes. So the rule for continuing education is that all licensees 
managing brokers and brokers must take six hours per year, which is really the number I want you to remember. Yes, it is 12 hours every two years, but for the state exam, the, the, the real requirement is six hours per year, even though it's, as I say, 12 hours every two years. Okay, so everybody takes 12 hours. Now, right below that, we see the managing brokers, in addition to the 12 hours of, quote, CE courses, they have to take a 12-hour broker management course. So for managing brokers, when they go to renew, they have a 24-hour requirement. And then below that, they talk a little bit about these the 12 hours that everybody takes. Uh, you have to take six hours of what are called mandatory core uh, courses and subjects like agency, escrow, fair housing, license law, and then you can take six hours in elective categories uh, such as property management, um, seller working with sellers and buyers, commercial brokerage, leasing, finance. These electives can be taken in a much broader uh, content areas. Exemptions and waivers. Uh, a licensee whose pre-renewal period is less than one year is exempt from that renewal period. So if you get your original license uh, less than one year before the renewal period, you're exempt from doing CE. Uh, licensees who serve in the armed services uh, are exempt. Full-time employees of the department, as we said, are exempt. And if the renewal application is an earned CE hours in a other state, some of that credit may be approved by the Illinois Department of Advisory Council. So if you do see in other states, often they will uh, approve it in this state, but you do have to check first. Every managing broker <coughs> in Illinois must maintain a definite office or place of business within the state. Uh, brokers must display at this definite office uh, an identification sign of adequate visibility uh, on the outside and on the inside they must hang or display uh, the office of uh, the uh, licenses of any of the people that they're, they're sponsored to them. Um, this even applies to home offices. Uh, you can have a home office but you do still have to comply with the rule of having a sign outside your quote home office as well as having your uh, licenses displayed inside. The, the rule on displaying of licenses inside is really you just have to have them available. You don't necessarily really have to hang them up on the wall, but they, they have to be available for uh, the department to come in and, and uh, see uh, if, uh, if you should have anyone come into your office, whether it's your home office or regular office. Um, the broker's office or place of business can't be located in any retail or financial business establishment unless it's in a separate and distinct area. This goes back uh, years ago to where uh, the uh, if you would go into a Sears office, a Sears store at uh, um, one of the shopping centers and you'd go down the escalators and at the bottom of the escalator you'd see one of those all-state insurance stands down there. Uh, we decided years ago that as real estate offices we would not allow anything like that. So that's where that rule comes from. So it doesn't mean that you can't have an office in a retail establishment <coughs> or something like a shopping center. It just needs to be in its own separate and distinct area. Not quite sure what that definition means, but uh, if you, uh, you, you need to meet the rule that it needs to be in a separate distinct uh, area. Uh, if it's uh, located in a retail or financial business establishment. Financial business establishment might be a, you know, say a bank. Uh, exceptions, 
exceptions to the place of business rule deal with uh, Illinois non-Illinois broker uh, brokers who are licensed by reciprocity. Uh, they have to meet the rules, whatever their states call for, as far as the place of business rule in their in their states. Uh, so well, they they're you know they're exempt from from our rule here, but they have to have I'm sure in their states they have to have some kind of rule on where their place of business is is located. Branch offices uh, only a real estate managing broker can supervise or control a real estate office or a real estate branch office. However, a managing broker can actually manage, manage multiple offices. Uh, the old rule was that if you were a managing, uh, managing broker, you could only manage one office at a time. So if, if a company had a number of branch offices, each branch office had to have its own separate and distinct managing broker. Uh, now you can be a managing broker for a number of branch offices. Uh, exceptions, non-Illinois broker, again, licensed by reciprocity, may be exempt from this definite place of business requirement. Uh, employment contracts, sponsoring managing brokers must have written agreements with any of their, we'll call them salespeople or brokers they employ, or with any other licensee that could be uh, a residential uh, leasing agent, for instance, uh, with whom they are associated identifying the licensee as, the, as an employee or an independent contractor. So we have to have written employment contracts with everyone uh, that we sponsor. And with those employment uh, contracts, specifically inside, within those written employment contracts, we will uh, designate with that individual whether that we've hired them as an employee or if their, their status is that of an independent contractor. Agency relationships, uh, when you start to work with a seller or a buyer, we are going to presume that you're representing them. They are your principal and they're your client, unless in writing you give them a document of non-agency that says you will not be representing them. So we presume agency when you, quote, begin working with someone, uh, a seller or a buyer. Uh, this doesn't mean uh, somebody at an open house that shows up. Just because a buyer comes to an open house doesn't mean uh, you as the seller's rep or uh, as a real estate agent that's hosting that, that uh, public open house is, is working for those people. There's sort of an exemption for open houses. But if you meet that potential buyer later and start to show that buyer property or answer questions about other kinds of property, then in fact you would be representing them. Designated agency in Illinois allows a managing broker to, uh, to enter into a listing agreement or a buyer brokerage agreement with a seller or buyer and in the um, listing agreement and in the buyer brokerage agreement designate someone in his office to actually represent that seller or buyer. That's called designated agent agency. Uh, and it's a way that that broker can avoid undisclosed dual agency because in this case the broker is not representing any, anybody, his salesperson is representing that person. Uh, the agency also requires uh, other types of disclosure including material facts disclosure relating to the property. Uh, again the agency relationships we just talked about as well as compensation sources. We must let our sellers and buyers know where our source of compensation is coming from and how much it is.
As far as uh, your relationship with your client, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about your duties to your client. I know we've talked about many of these before, so this will be kind of a review for you. Um, the first, your first duty is to perform the term of your agreement. Whatever you were hired to do, whatever your employment contract called for with your client, seller, buyer, landlord, or tenant, uh, that, that's what you need to do. You've got, a, you've got a contractual relationship, and so therefore you have to perform that which you've agreed to perform. Uh, you need to promote the, your, the best interests of your client, which basically means you have to disclose any material facts about the property or uh, the transaction itself that would be important for your client to know, seller or buyer. A material fact basically is any fact that once known to your client might affect his ability to make a decision or might affect the decision he, uh, he or she might make would be a material fact disclosure and we must make those to our clients. Uh, we need to be obedient and follow lawful instructions of our principles. If our principal asks us to do something illegal or against public policy or violate federal or state or, or license law, uh, we simply uh, cannot do that. And if the uh, client uh, continues to press us to do so, we should withdraw from the transaction. We need to exercise skill and care in what we do. We have to keep confidential information confidential and, of course, comply with the Real Estate License Act. Old car might be a way to remember all of these duties. Uh, old car, obedience, loyalty, disclosure, confidentiality, accounting, and reasonable care. As far as our relationship to our customers, if you will, non-agency relationships, we still owe customers that we work with a fair and honest transaction, account for their monies, disclosure of material facts, and we can offer them ministerial acts without our acts rising to the level of client-level relationships. So ministerial acts are those things we can do when we work with customers. And harm might be a way to remember this. So disclosure and ministerial acts are two critical um, elements of uh, duties that we owe to our customers. Harm, honesty, accounting, reasonable skill, material disclosure, ministerial acts. As it applies to informed written consent, there are kind of two instances where this becomes problematic. The first is if we're involved or we're going to practice dual agency. Dual agency, of course, is where you're representing both a buyer and a seller in the same transaction. Uh, it, it's legal to do that, to have two clients that you're representing uh, in the same transaction, sellers and buyers, uh, as long as uh, they give you written consent and they have been notified of the possibility of dual agency. And what really happens here is in our employment contracts with the seller or buyer brokerage agreements with the uh, buyer, uh, there'd be a clause in there that says, Mr. Seller, Mr. Buyer, there, there's a chance, albeit maybe a slim one, that I will also be a dual agent in this deal. In that case, I want you to read this, uh, this clause on dual agency so you'll have some notification of that possibility. And then if, in fact, you are going to be a dual agent, then on the sales contract there'll be uh, consent that both seller and buyer will give 
on the sales contract to allow you to be a dual agent. So that's how you give this notification of the possibility of dual agency, and that's how you get written consent from both parties, and then you can proceed to represent both of them. Uh, the other time where informed written consent comes in is where we have contemporaneous offers. Here's where you have two buyer clients that want you to negotiate for them on the same property. Uh, in that case, they have to fill out the contemporaneous offer form that's found way back on page 116, and I think we talked about it at that time, but just to refresh your memory, uh, that's where you've got uh, two buyers that would fill this contemporary office offer form that allows you to represent both of them uh, in negotiating on the same property. Uh, if either of them um, uh, you know, uh, does not give you written permission to do so, uh, then you can't represent that buyer uh, in, that, um, in that instance on that property while you are also representing your other buyer. Uh, so you, you know maybe you get somebody else in your office uh, to represent one of your buyers while you you know if you will pick the other a client of yours buyer client of yours and and work with them and they can work with the other buyer but in any event both buyer clients have to give you written permission in order for you to represent both of them in the same transaction that you would be negotiating for same property uh, designated agency, that's what we have in Illinois. We're a designated agency state, which simp simply allows our sponsoring broker the ability to appoint uh, our agents that work for us to become designated agents of uh, someone that our sponsoring broker has a contract with. So uh, it allows the designated agent in our office then to represent a seller or a designated agent, agent to represent a buyer. So the sponsoring broker can sort of shed or deflect uh, any agency between individuals that he has a contract with, whether it's a listing contract or a buyer brokerage. He can deflect uh, any uh, agency duties by simply designating somebody else to stand in and fulfill those duties. Also, as a designated agent, our clients can't be held vicariously liable for the acts or omissions of their agents. Um, obviously, this is without their knowledge or consent. So um, that's part of our designated agency law when we wrote that law some time ago. And the other thing that we include in our designated agency law is that just because you list your property, Mr. Listing Broker, uh, with uh, an MLS, uh, that doesn't make all the other people in the MLS sub-agents of you. And why? Because you're not an agent to begin with. You're the designated agent is the one representing the seller or the buyer, not you as an office. Therefore, you're not extending any sub-agency because technically you can't to other brokers uh, by virtue of placing that listing uh, in a multiple listing service. So a licensee must disclose to client material facts concerning the transaction of which the licensee has actual knowledge unless that information is confidential information. So we're talking about disclosure of material facts here, uh, representing the seller, certainly representing the buyer. We must as agents disclose any material fact to the other party, if you will, uh, as soon as it becomes uh, available to us. Uh, or of which we have actual knowledge as an agent. Um, material facts would be any fact that a reasonable seller, or in this case, typically we're talking about a buyer or a tenant, 
would make a uh, decision on and it would affect his decision in purchasing or leasing that property. Uh, a reasonable person would then look at that material uh, fact and say, yeah, that is uh, uh, an important enough uh, disclosure that it might in fact uh, affect uh, and determine whether or not a buyer or a tenant would either buy or lease that property. That would be a material uh, disclosure. Another way of looking at material disclosures are these are uh, disclosures uh, whereby uh, there is uh, there's a uh, uh, there's a defect on the property uh, that might uh, reasonably hamper an individual from enjoying or living on the property. Uh, remember, properties are there for habitability. So any defect that might affect the habitability of the property would, could also be uh, considered a material disclosure. And so our, we as licensees must disclose uh, any material facts relating to that property as soon as uh, they become known to us or until uh, up until the point that we have um, actual information of the defect. Um, the um, This business of confidential information, if you are given confidential information, you need to keep it confidential. However, if it's material uh, disc uh, material fact disclosure, uh, you must tell the uh, sellers uh, that uh, in fact uh, that disclosure must be made. You can't use confidentiality as a way of hiding material fact disclosures. And technically if the seller would say no, I want you to keep that material fact disclosure comp uh, confidential or a secret because you represent me and you have to keep all this stuff confidential, then your only option really would be to terminate the contract and uh, let the seller deal with somebody else. So you can't use confidential information as a way of hiding from potential buyers or from disguising your uh, duty to disclose material uh, information, material facts information. So as it relates to material facts, uh, agents must disclose material facts and any latent or hidden defects of property that they're aware of to prospective buyers. So we must disclose any material facts and latent or hidden defects. Now just on the side, uh, there is a defect called a patent defect, P-A-T-E-N-T. Patent defects are visible defects. Those technically you don't have to disclose because they're easily or readily seen. But latent defects were duty bound, if we're aware of them, to disclose. So I might uh, point out here, isn't this a good idea to make sure that we have our sellers sign that and fill out that seller um, disclosure, uh, real property disclosure form that we talked about in one of the earlier chapters. Uh, once the sellers uh, fill that form out, then we can rely that there aren't any other latent defects that we haven't been made aware of, and we can then uh, uh, proceed, and uh, if there's any defects in what they've told us, we can disclose those. If they don't disclose latent or material defects, then really that's going to be their issue and not that of the agent. So the agent wouldn't be guilty of uh, non-disclosure of a material fact. So we need to have those residential seller uh, disclosure form, uh, property disclosure forms uh, uh, prepared by the sellers. Uh, material facts uh, include the structure, uh, the who you're representing, uh, any dual agency uh, issues, any environmental issues, if you were the uh, uh, agent previously of, of this property. 
Uh, and of course, uh, if the uh, real estate agent uh, is a party or has an interest in the deal, we must disclose any interest that we have either as sellers or purchasers of property now that we're licensed. Uh, Non-material facts. So we want to make sure we know about those latent or hidden defects. Non-material facts. These are not material facts. These do not, these cannot or do not have to be disclosed. The first is whether the occupant of a property had HIV or other serious mental condition. Uh, you, you can't do that. Uh, HIV is protected. So if sellers uh, have HIV or AIDS, uh, that, is a, uh, that is a condition that cannot be disclosed by the agents. These others are non-material facts that if agents want to disclose, they can, but they don't have to and would be held harmless. Uh, if they did not disclose these other non-material facts because they don't affect habitability. For instance, uh, st uh, stigmatized conditions, which is number two. Stigmatized conditions would be conditions that might uh, affect uh, the, uh, uh, they might be uh, related to ghosts or murders or criminal act or gang act activity or suicides. Uh, the types of things that have occurred on the property that don't affect the physical condition of the property. Those you don't have to disclose if, in fact, you don't want to. Uh, three issues not found on the subject property. Uh, we're only duty-bound to disclose those issues that are really found on our property uh, if there are, because we, we could be made aware of those. If there are extraordinary conditions outside the property, we probably would be held harmless for those. We get environmental issues sometimes that we might have to. So your book might be a little, this might be a little gray area as far as your book is concerned. Uh, physical defects that don't affect value, again, uh, conditions that don't have to be disclosed because they're considered non-material facts. Uh, handling client funds escrow account regulations, very important. We want to know everything we can about escrow fun, uh, accounting, even though uh, most of uh, uh, th those of you that are getting your license or have a license will have broker's licenses. You won't be managing brokers, but you still should have an idea of what happens with uh, uh, earnest money and how earnest money or escrow funds, I should say, are held. Uh, earnest money, uh, escrow accounts include not only earnest money, but also security deposits. So our escrow accounts, where we hold earnest money of buyers or security deposits of tenants, uh, first and foremost, must be held in federally insured depositories. The deposits of earnest money must be made within one business day of contract formation. So as soon as we have a, quote, contract, that would be both parties have signed the document, within one day of that, uh, that event, we have to de deposit earnest monies in uh, these escrow accounts. Uh, escrow accounts should be non-interest-bearing unless the both clients give us written direction to place them in, in interest-bearing accounts. So they give us a writing that says they should be in interest-bearing accounts, and that writing should also include who will get the earnest uh, the uh, interest from the uh, escrow accounts. Does it go to all the seller, all the buyer? Are they going to split it or, or, or whatever? But uh, that must be uh, identified in that writing. Escrow money should not be withdrawn from the account if a dispute arises as to who should receive the monies. What they're saying here is until you're given written, written instruction by both parties, um, 
uh, do not remove uh, or withdraw from the account uh, earnest monies and dispose of them, either give them to the seller or give them to the buyer. Uh, you'll only dispose of earnest money, you'll only release earnest money when you have written direction by both parties or their legal representatives. Licensees may res respond within 24 hours upon receipt of a request to examine or audit escrow accounts. When you first set up your escrow accounts, one of the things you'll do is notify the department and give them a document that will show them that you, in fact, are holding earnest monies. It'll also tell them who's responsible for them and also the depository that you're going to be keeping them. Uh, that triggers where they can come in your office and say, okay, we know you're a company that has earnest money accounts. Let us see your earnest money record keeping. Each sponsoring broker who accepts earnest money shall maintain in an office or place of business a bookkeeping system consisting of the following, a journal, ledger, monthly reconciliations, and a master escrow account log. So when you keep your escrow accounts, you have a certain uh, format uh, that you must account for your earnest monies. Uh, they can be by electronic format. You can do it just by paper format. It doesn't have to be a sophisticated system. But if the department comes in to examine your earnest money escrow account records, they're going to look for a, lead, a journal. Uh, a journal is going to be a list, just like your, uh, your, uh, your journal for your uh, checks that you have in your uh, checking account records. Uh, it'll be a, a journal of each day's transaction in date order of what monies went in and what monies went out of your escrow account. Then you'll have ledgers set up. Each ledger is for each account. So we can look at each escrow account and look at each ledger and see what transaction, what's going on with each transaction. When the uh, earnest money uh, was deposited for that uh, particular deal, when the earnest money re was released, or what earnest money is still within your account uh, for that particular transaction. Monthly reconciliations within, the ten, within 10 days at the end of each month, you must reconcile all of your accounts so they balance. And you'll actually put that on a master escrow account log that will be one sheet of paper that will show virtually every dollar that goes in, has gone in or has gone out of your escrow accounts and what the balances are. So a master escrow account log is, is one sheet of paper that gives the department one, click, one quick look at uh, what uh, the status is of your escrow accounts, what the balances are, what's still outstanding, what deals still have to be done. Personal assistance. Illinois says if we hire personal assistants, they can either be licensed or unlicensed. The big deal is if they're licensed, now that's a good deal because then uh, your licensed uh, personal assistant can do all kinds of things for you, working on your team, if you will. Uh, the licensed personal assistant can show property, can hold uh, public open houses, can negotiate contracts, uh, can uh, uh, you know, uh, give your clients any information that you want them to have. Uh, but licensed sales assistants, uh, at that point that they're licensed, are they going to be licensed to your sponsoring broker, even if they work for you, they're licensed to the sponsoring broker, and uh, therefore they have to meet all the same requirements all license other licensees have to meet. So they have to have an employment contract, have to determine whether they're going to be independent contractors, employees, any monies that they receive as licensed personal assistants, even though they work for you, monies have to come from the broker 
to them. Uh, unlicensed sales assistants, well, those rules don't apply, uh, and they can be employees and paid by the, uh, you know, the licensed broker that they work for. Uh, so they really can be part of your team, and you can direct their activities. But if they're unlicensed, uh, they're basically um, do secretarial and administrative functions for you. Uh, technically, they uh, can't deal directly with uh, sellers and buyers as far as you know negotiating or any sort of contractual uh, obligations. Uh, they're basically administra administrative in function. Um, as an unlicensed sales assistant, um, they cannot receive any compensation that has uh, been a part of uh, any a commission structure. Uh, so not in the form of con commissions. So. Uh, if you are going to hire a licensed or unlicensed uh, sales assistant, you want to make sure you sit down with your broker ahead of time to determine all of these issues, whether they're going to be licensed or unlicensed, how they're going to get paid, who's going to pay them, and uh, whatever you know, obligations the sponsoring broker uh, has got to adhere to uh, in dealing with, your, with these licensed or unlicensed personal assistants. Advertising regulations, as far as real estate brokers and brokerage companies advertising, uh, brokers must include in all ads, and, and by the way, this applies to electronic media as well as print media, uh, you know, web pages, emails, social media, so, uh, you know, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, any uh, ads that brokers uh, place must include their uh, business name and if they're part of a franchise or franchise affiliation. Uh, if they, if you don't do that, that's considered a blind ad, and that would be a, uh, uh, be a, would be a, in a, not in accordance with the license law, and could uh, uh, you you might get a discipline against you if you did that. So we we our blind ads are prohibited in Illinois. Uh, those would be ads that don't include the, the the name of the business and or its franchise affiliation. Advertising can't be fraudulent or deceptive or inherently misleading. Advertising must contain all the information necessary to communicate to the public accurate and direct reliable, readable, comprehensible manner, in a readable, comprehensive manner. And uh, while I'm on that, uh, while we're doing this advertising, uh, we also, if it's a listing that we're advertising, let's just talk about that for a second, if, we're, if we have a list, listings, properties in our ads, in addition to the broker name and or affiliation, we must include the location of the property. doesn't have to have a street address, uh, but needs to have a town or geographical area. So if our advertising is also including properties, we must also include this geographical area uh, disclosure. <coughs> Licensees cannot advertise their services to the public through any media without the listing the business name of the broker with whom she is affiliated, and if the uh, broker advertises his name, not the business name, but if the broker, managing broker, also advertises his name, we must include that he's the managing broker in the end. So if his, if his personal name is not identified, that's okay, but if we do have his name somewhere uh, in that web page or someplace in that ad, we must have an indication that he, in fact, is the managing broker. 
uh, advertising signs. Real estate brokers can't place any ad signs on any property without the, without the written consent of the owner or the owner's agents. Typically, we get this uh, permission to advertise under the listing agreements uh, that we sign with the seller. But in order to, to do any advertising, including putting it in a multiple listing service, our sellers must give us written permission. As it relates to real estate agents selling their own properties, there are a couple of disclosure requirements here. The first is that in selling your own property, you need to let the public know that they're not dealing with just any ordinary citizen that they're dealing with an Illinois licensee. So that's what all of these things we're going to be talking about. That's the premise these are all based on. So on your for sale signs, you need to put, uh, when you're selling your own property, uh, broker-owned or agent-owned uh, in ads or in any marketing materials. Uh, this also includes any yard signs. Now, you can use your brokerage company's yard sign if they permit it, if they allow it. You can use your brokerage company's sign and, and then you're, and you don't have to put agent owned or broker owned on it because obviously people will know that this, this has something to do with a real estate office or a real estate licensee. So uh, that, that sort of gives the, the public some disclosure that they're not, this isn't, this isn't an, uh, a, a typical for sale by owner. Uh, you must disclose your license status on any of the contracts, whether it's a listing contract or whether it's a sales contract or a lease. Um, you would want to put under seller or buyer or landlord or tenant, whichever part of the deal you're in, that you're an Illinois real estate licensee or Illinois, uh, Illinois licensed uh, real estate broker, something to that effect. Um, as far as phone book listings are concerned, or any online directory uh, where you know public, uh, the public has access to it, uh, anytime you place your ad in any of these directories or in phone books, if people are still doing that, uh, then you also have to make sure your sponsoring business, uh, sponsoring broker's business name is also included in those ads. Compensation, it's unlawful for any licensed uh, salesperson, if you will, broker salesperson, to accept a commission or other valuable consideration from anyone except the sponsoring broker. So you will only get your monies from your sponsoring broker. No one else can pay you directly. Must go through them. Licensees must disclose any ownership interest uh, above 1% in any third-party provider of services related to the transaction. So if you're dealing with, let's say, a buyer and you refer the buyer to a mortgage company and you or your company owns more than 1% interest in that mortgage company, you must disclose that to potential buyer, uh, that you, in fact, uh, that is a controlled business relationship uh, and, uh, and that you, in fact, or your company uh, has an ownership interest. A sponsored licensee may create an unlicensed corporation whose sole purpose is to receive compensation from a sponsoring broker. We do allow our sponsored licensees, even though they're sponsored to a sponsoring broker, even though they're not running the company, they can form their own corporation in order to uh, receive compensation from the sponsoring broker. So you can organize yourself as a corporation, uh, miss Mr. Salesperson, if you will, uh, as a corporation to receive compensation. And by the way, this is really done more for liability aspects rather than IRS uh, tax implications. 
but it is possible to do that. Uh, bear in mind that if you do set up a corporation in order to receive compensation from your sponsoring broker under a corporate form of ownership, you can only, there's only one shareholder and that needs to be you. A licensed personal assistant must be sponsored by and compensated by the owner broker. We mentioned that earlier. Uh, just like any licensee, uh, if we violate the license law, what can the department do to us? Uh, so as you're going through this chapter and you're looking at all the various, you know, things that can get you in trouble, uh, ultimately this is what the trouble can be. They can refuse to issue you or renew your license. They can suspend or revoke your license. They can censure or reprimand a license. They can place a licensee on probation. And they can also impose a civil penalty of not more than $25,000 for each uh, occurrence or uh, uh, discipline that they, um, they milled out. Uh, causes for discipline, pages 274 and 275 have uh, a whole host of things uh, that if you violate uh, can cause one of those disciplines we just talked about. And sometime you need to read all the way through them. I'm not going to go through each and every one of them. I'm going to sort of highlight the high points on page 274 and 275. But do read them through thoroughly at least one time. I think it's a good exercise for you to do. So here's a couple of the high points. Uh, we'll start on page uh, uh, 273. Um, make a fault, making false or fraudulent representation in, a, in attempting to obtain a license or, or be, be convicted of a felony. Uh, when you go to get your license, uh, you have to make certain disclosures. One is that if you've ever been convicted of a felony, the others maybe you make a false representation that says that uh, in fact you, uh, you aren't in arrears in your Illinois uh, student loans when in fact you are. Uh, attempt to subvert or cheat on the licensing exam, uh, if you use any misleading or untruthful advertising, if you use any trade name or insignia of membership in a real estate organization of which you're not a member. So uh, if you uh, hold out that you're a uh, CRS, a certified residential specialist, this is a very prestigious, I think, designation given by the NAR to people who complete the CRS program and you hold yourself out to be a CRS and you're not. Uh, you could be held to discipline. So be careful if you own, if you hold any of these designations and then uh, you don't renew them or you don't continue, uh, um, you know, uh, taking courses to renew your designations, you can have those designations revoked and there you are continuing to use them illegally. Uh, if you act as an undisclosed, du undisclosed dual agent, <coughs> obviously very serious, you can be disciplined. If you fail to account uh, to monies coming into possession of, of yours uh, that other people are entrusting with you, those would be those escrow account kinds of rules, that's why we have those. If you fail to deposit in your special non-interest bearing accounts, uh, those monies that belong to others. If you fail to make all escrow accounts available to the department within 24 hours, uh, if you fail to furnish copies of documents that uh, of real estate transactions uh, that you've had, uh, you've got to keep uh, documents of your real estate transactions and you've got to keep records of your earnest money accounts for a minimum of five years. If you fail to by a sponsoring broker to submit termination documents within a timely manner, you can have your license uh, 
uh, discipline. So if someone leaves you, you've got you know a, a, a two-day period of time to give them their original license so they can go to the new broker. You can't drag your feet and uh, withhold withhold that from them uh, uh, purposely. Uh, if you pay a commission or valuable consideration to any person uh, for acts performed in violation of the license act, so you pay someone a commission and uh, they're supposed to be licensed and they weren't. Uh, so that's in violation of the act, you can be held liable. If you commingle your money with monies of others, if you display a sign on property without the written permission or advertise without owner's permission, if you engage in a violation of the Illinois Human Rights Act, which prohibits unlawful discrimination, you can be disciplined. Uh, where you're a licensed attorney, you can't act as both lawyer and broker in the same transaction. That would be a violation of law. So if you're a lawyer broker in each deal, you have to decide whether you're going to represent the parties as a lawyer or represent the parties as a buyer, but you can't represent both and be paid for both services. Uh, if you violate any provision of the Illinois Real Estate Time Share Act, you can be disciplined. Uh, other causes for discipline, if you're guilty of discrimination by a federal cor uh, 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 HUD administrative judge or by a federal court or by a state court in violation of the Illinois Human Rights Act, you can have your real estate license disciplined. If you offer a guaranteed sales plan <coughs> and you don't adhere to the rules for offering guaranteed sales plans, so we might want to read what those uh, guaranteed sales plans requirements uh, are. Uh, you can have your license, license disciplined. Other causes for discipline, if you haven't paid your Illinois income tax, if you haven't paid child support, or if you haven't paid your Illinois guaranteed student loans, uh, you can have your license revoked or refused to be renewed. Um, brokers will not have their licenses disciplined if there was an unlawful act or violation conducted uh, by someone associated with them that that sponsoring broker, managing broker, had no knowledge of. So if one of your salespeople or um, uh, brokers that are working for you, Mr. Sponsoring Broker, uh, and they did something illegal and you had no knowledge of or had cause to have knowledge of, then you probably would not be vicariously liable for their actions. Uh, Got to be a little careful with that because the law is pretty strict saying that you're responsible for all activities. So uh, if you didn't know of them, they were doing something clandestine, something that you, you know, was very underhanded and kept from you uh, in a you know, woeful manner, then maybe you could back out and say you, you had no knowledge of and you won't be held responsible along with them. The statute of limitations for disciplines against your license is five years within the alleged violation. So if uh, there's a statute of limitations then of five years uh, on uh, the department bringing an action against you for uh, violations of the Illinois Real Estate License Act. The Real Estate Recovery Fund, one of the things we talked about earlier when you get an original license is you will give $10 to the recovery fund each and every original license. 
these monies go into a thing called the recovery fund. The recovery fund is there in order to make whole any member of the public. Now, this is not somebody from the profession. This is not you or a licensee. But if a member of the public has been injured by the acts of one of our licensees, they can go to the recovery fund and recover monies from that. Now, this is a real strict process, and it's actually a little more complicated than we're making it. But we do want to know is that we do maintain a bit of a safety net for our people here in, in Illinois, our members of the public, where we've, the Illinois Department has gone out and said this is a, a person who uh, we will grant a license to do business. And since this person has injured a member of the public, we'll take some responsibility for that and we'll create this recovery fund. Uh, the injured party, the member of the public, has to go to court, try to get, try to be made whole through an, a civil action against that licensee, and then if they weren't made whole, then they can go to the recovery fund, showing loss. The recovery fund then uh, may, in fact, you know, get them some monies to make them whole again. Uh, there is a limit to what the member of the public can get uh, under the refund, uh, and here it is. The limit, uh, the amount is. $10,000 in damages and uh, attorney's fees not to exceed 15% of the amount recovered. With a total amount uh, for any single act of $10,000, but a maximum amount of $50,000 if there is more than one uh, act that they've been involved in. So the most award that a person can get for any single act would be $10,000 and 15% attorney's fees. If there were a number of individuals involved and a number of acts that the, uh, the individual violated, then the amount of the award would be a maximum of $50,000 and those three or four or five or 10 people would have to split that $50,000 with attorney's fees not to exceed 15% of that amount. If you were the licensee that caused a payment from the recovery fund, you would have your license terminated. Now you can get your license back if you pay back the department plus interest. And now turn to your quizzes for Chapter 14, Illinois License Law, and take those at this time.